Paul Roshan is a property developer with over 160 million pounds of deals under his belt across 50 projects in prime and super prime London, specializing in luxury flats and apartments. During the 2000s, he amassed a portfolio of 120 million pounds while in his late 20s, before things suddenly changed overnight in 2007. So I made over, what was it, one, two, three, three and a half, four million pounds in one week. So that was about 1.7 million uh, profit at that time. And that was when it was like, yeah, okay. It was a very nice lifestyle. We had uh, my nice Aston Martin, I had my Ferraris, I had a beautiful range of cars, five, six cars. But now I had a bunch of like Jay-Z parties and there was like, you know, they're spending 60, 60, 70,000 pounds in one night. But what it has made me is, is, is humble now. It's now made me respect people because I've seen people on the breadline. I've also seen how hard it is when you are suffering. The hampers stop coming at Christmas. You stop getting invited to the Wimbledon tennis, or you stop getting invited over mm -hmm. to, to Monaco. Some of the banks were very nasty. We will bankrupt you, we will do this to you, and you'll be working at McDonald's for the rest of your life. Four, five, six people I kind of knew or heard about in, in the business, mm -hmm. they all committed suicide. They couldn't handle it. Yeah. And it's very hard from having a very, very good lifestyle, having whatever you want, to having nothing, to losing everything, is a very, very difficult thing to take. So, Today I'm joined with someone I'm actually very excited to speak with and somebody that I wanted to get on the podcast for some, some time now. So, Paul Roshan, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. No, thank you for coming. Very grateful. Um, you've, got a, you've, got a, you've got a large following and I thought it'd be beneficial, hopefully, to, to pass a little bit of knowledge down to the younger generation, hopefully. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to it. And it's a funny story how, I guess, we came to meet, so... I first heard your story on another podcast, probably about 18 months ago now. And I remember thinking, wow, this, this guy's incredible, his story, his character. And I'm not huge on LinkedIn. So obviously you're very big on LinkedIn and um, see a lot of your content there now, but found you on Instagram, um, private account. I don't think you really created much content back then and dropped you a message to say, hey, just listen to your story. I'm absolutely um, you know, blown away by it would love to connect some time and then I think a week or so later you must have realized um seen one of the photos I posted of yeah. the view here outside of my apartment and um you lived obviously just not too far from me and we then uh we then connected and yeah and, and here we are so small not too world. far we live right next door to each other right next door to each other literally yeah. the building the building next door yeah. um although you have got a better view definitely got a better view um, I would say yeah, yeah well it's yeah I don't know they're, they're both beautiful buildings, yeah, yeah, but, but here we are. So for those that don't know you, um, I mean, where did your property journey start? In fact, what was the first memory or kind of exposure you had to property development? Uh, well, started working with my uncle and then um, we started developing in Tooting mm -hmm. area, started developing houses down there, started developing three or four, you know, quite aggressively. Sure. Uh, Six hundred thousand pound houses, okay. selling them out for nine hundred thousand, and um, you know I thought my uncle was good. Yep. Yeah, but I thought he could improve. Okay. Because he was putting old stuff into a new house, and I wanted to go into Prime Central London and develop mm -hmm. in Prime Central London, where I saw people making serious money. Mm -hmm. um, I did a couple of developments around Tooting in these areas, uh, Wandsworth, and found out that you know you can make quick money by 
developing if they do the right style and the right finish. Sure. So, you know, I was making 90,000, 100 grand, you know, at that time at the sort of 19, 20 years old. Yeah. It was very good money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was turning around these deals, you know, quite quickly mm-hmm. and started, you know, socializing, going out, meeting the right people. And then got backed by a gentleman called Khaled. Okay. Who's now passed away, who, who I like very much. Mm-hmm. And he had, um, he had invested, you know, a couple of million with me straight away. Wow. Um, we turned that couple of million into into a very large portfolio, um, which I was very lucky to have somebody like him to back me at the time. Uh, he was really just doing stocks and shares, and okay, you know, he gave him something to really get his teeth into. He started learning about the business, mm-hmm. and who else? So then I had a, another gentleman invest with me as well, who's in the nightclub business. Okay. Um, didn't really mess about. It's just like, yeah, right. We we'll do this deal. Boom. Here's the money. Let's do it. You know, it's, you have different characters in this business. You got mm-hmm. different. You got very relaxed, chilled out characters, and then you got characters who who really push hard to make money and are hungry. And I've learned, you know, all different types of people how to be with each type of person. It's a bit of a chameleon. Yeah. So back to then the deals you're doing in Tooting when you first started. What kind of properties were they? They were, you know, sort of the one was a one was an old laundry. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a first first and second floor old laundry, American Anglo laundry. Sure. And it was it was roughly about ninety grand to buy, mm-hmm. and spent about thirty thousand on it, and sold it for about one hundred eighty thousand. Wow. And that excited me because I think, wow, I can now go out and buy a BMW three two five i convertible. Yep. Blue. <laughs> and it was exciting times at that time. Because before that, I was just working in the markets, selling paintings and, you know, making 500 quid a week. Mm-hmm. So suddenly making, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 was, was, was pretty well. So talk me through some of the, some of your favorite deals that you did. Chelsea Harbour, penthouse flat, mm-hmm. beautiful apartment. Met the guy in the lift who owned it. I was living on the first floor. I said to him, do you want to sell your flat? He said, no way. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, can I come and see it? So I went up, had a look. The views were amazing. I said, what price will you sell this flat for? He said, 1.95. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, fine. Shook hands there and then. Yep. Did the deal. Refurbished it. I think it's 700000 on it. Um, only lived there for four or five months. And then Smirnoff Fokker family came around, had a look. And they offered, well, they said, what do you want? Foxen said, what do you want for this flat? I said, I don't want to sell it. I've only just moved in. Mm-hmm. I love it here. And they said, well, what do you want? I said, there must be a price. I said, okay, give me 4.5 million. She offered 4.4, I think. Uh, 4.4 or 4.5, something like that. 4.4. And she took it with all the furniture and everything. And that was another very good deal. So that was a bit like the one in Camden Hill Gate, where I made about 1.7 million. I did both those deals roughly in the same week. So I made over, what was it, one, two, three, three and a half, four million pounds in one week. And how old are you? 20, no, actually, I was probably 31, 32, wow. 31, 32. Okay. By that time. And that was, that was, that's when I knew I was doing the right business. Mm-hmm. And I knew Prime was right for me at the time. And, and from there, did you, th- did you want to do bigger stuff or did you kind of just want to do more of those kind of deals in that kind of price bracket between two to five million? No, I was quite happy doing yeah. deals between sort of two to five, two to six, two to seven in that region. Um, but I decided to move out of London and do stuff out in the countryside. I thought I'd do some big mansions out there. It's a lot different. 
it's not like a straightforward refurb that you're doing in central sure. London. Was this ground up construction where you we were talking proper basements, seven thousand square foot basements, and then you've got the house, which is about sixteen, seventeen thousand square foot. Yeah. Um it's a completely different ballgame. And this know? was out in what kind of areas? Like Surrey or St George's Hill. Okay. Yeah, St George's Hill. That was a learning curve for me, St George's Hill. You make money or lose money? No, I invested money into that and I lost money. Okay. So out of fifty five developments I made on fifty two and I lost on three. That's not bad going. Which is about a ninety six point two percent success Tra- rate. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. What was so out of all of them, what was the deal where you kind of walked away with the most amount of money? Ooh, as I said, those two flats making those two. In, in one week probably you know, close to four million in one week was was pretty good. Wow. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. I've done a lot of others where I was making a million or nine fifty, you know, with partners mm-hmm. in, in the past. But every, everything I invested, I kept investing, investing, investing. And I would say my downfall was I invested into Surrey, too much into Surrey, an area which I didn't really know. Sure. Heavily. Um, and that's when the, when the market turned. So, so what was that moment then? Can you remember that moment where you thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. This is it. This is where I see myself, you know, how I see myself operating for the next decade or so. I saw myself after I, was, after I sold a couple and mm-hmm. went, to, went to Chelsea Harbour, had a one-bedroom flat, sold that. Okay. Just gave it 12 grand refurb and then made 60,000 on it. Wow. I thought, wow, this is something that you can really make money. So I thought, what I need is a backer. And that's mm-hmm. when I started socialising. Okay. And that's where I met a couple of good people that backed me with two, three million pounds. And how old are you then when you decide to get the backing? Uh, probably 24. Or 23, 23, 24, in that, in that region, 23. And, yeah. and so taking a jump then from, I mean, when you got the backing, what was a jump in house prices from, I mean, when you did the one in Chelsea Harbour you just mentioned, versus then getting to that next level? What what size deals was that that you jumped into? I remember I was doing deals at 180,000, 200,000, 250, mm-hmm. and then suddenly I was living in a studio flat yep. in Leinster Gardens, and then I moved out of the studio flat suddenly into a flat in Eaton Place, which was nearly 2,500 square foot, roughly. Mm-hmm. And it was huge. And it was worth probably 1.1, 1.2 million when we bought it. Okay. Extended the lease, sold it for 3.8 million. Wow. So that was a big jump going yep. from, from 150, 200 grand flats to Eaton Place suddenly. So, so run me through the numbers on that one again on Eaton Place. So Eaton Place? Yep. Um, I, think the, I think the purchase price back then, when I, we're talking 2002 maybe sure. in that region, was around nine hundred and sixty thousand, I believe, the purchase okay. price. Yeah. So um, and then the refurb was. Uh, it was around. Uh, it's hard to say what the refurb was. Such a long time ago, but about seven eight hundred thousand for the refurb. Mm-hmm. And then extending the lease was about a million pounds. Wow. Okay. So quite a quite lot more than we thought. Anyway. Fair enough. And that was so. That was maybe the first deal you did, which was kind of that big jump up. How so? A lot of people I speak to that kind of want to take that transition into the bigger developments, maybe they've done a few smaller refurbishments, they want to get into some some bigger stuff. It comes with a lot of fear or, or questioning, but for you at the time, was you just confident, ready to go, had the backing? What was your kind of mindset? I had a good broker. Okay. I had a broker that said, well, I believe in you, you know, yep. we can do this. He was hungry, he was starting out. I think I think it was Investec or one of these banks that backed me on the deal at the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have, having it's like putting a jigsaw mm-hmm. pieces together. You've got to have the backer, you've got to have the bank, you've got to maybe have the MES funder, you've got to have the deal, you've got to get extend the lease. So the whole thing together, when it was finished, it was very satisfying because, you know, you had the Grosvenor Estate 
buy it back off you. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so what happened from from then? Obviously, you did the first deal. I bet you're kind of ecstatic, more money than you'd ever seen in your life. And from that point, just scaled from there. I mean, talk us through kind of the deals you did from that point onwards. Yeah, it was scaled up quickly. Um, yeah. Very, very quickly. We started buying a King's Chelsea off plan, a couple of flats there. Okay. Have you heard of the King's Chelsea? No. It's down, down, basically down the King's Road, but mm-hmm. before you get to Lots Road on the right-hand side. Okay. Big development there. So we bought two of those off plan, held it maybe for six, eight months, sold it, made money. Um, did a few deals in the Lounge Square, mm-hmm. um, where else? Um, Cadogan Gardens. Okay. And then also Sloan Street. Yeah. It was a nice deal as well. So wow. we scaled up very, very quickly. Um, I think at one time we had about 15, 16 flats going on together. Wow. And what was the kind of value of these flats? They're ranging from one, two million up to six, seven million, I would say. Okay. But you're always on the move, going from different sites, looking at products, how you can improve your flats. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes flying out to look at, you know, quarries or whatever. Wow. You're always trying to improve and be better than the other people uh, as far as development's concerned. And so and so, what does that look like then in terms of the actual development process? You, you, you're working with brokers to find one of these these flats, these opportunities in terms of the value you were adding to them, you were just trying to op, um, sell to that high-end luxury kind of buyer that just wanted perfect interior or... Yeah, you wanted, you wanted to be able to produce something that was, that, that, that was better than the others, better okay. than your competition. And always put something in the flats that people haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Different types of sinks, bathrooms, you know, just something unique uh, where people just say, wow, that's, that's amazing. I mean, when we did Eaton Place, we had... Uh, we had good tenants there. We had Helen Crespo, mm-hmm. who used to play for Chelsea. Okay. We had Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. You know, they were paying five, six grand a week rent. So you yep. know you're doing something right, even mm-hmm. at an early age. You're getting the developments right. You're getting the standard right. Wow. And you you decided a lot of these flats to, to keep and retain for your portfolio, right? Yes. What was the thought process behind that? Thought process was just to try and build up a very large portfolio. Yep. And hopefully, you know, have a good yield. Mm-hmm and then sell them off eventually to a pension fund where you could make a serious amount of money and retire. Yeah. And that obviously was my plan, but it couldn't happen and didn't happen because of the crash in 08. So, but I think by that time, if it didn't happen, the crash, I would have been one of the largest developers in prime central London without doubt. Wow. For sure. So just going back to kind of the one of the, the first few deals you did, I mean, when you, did one of the these bigger deals for the first time. Do you remember when you made your first million? When you kind of made your first million from a deal? From the first million from a, from one deal? Yeah. Or just one deal. Mm-hmm. That was um that was Camden Hill Gate. Okay. So that was that was a deal where it was in Holland Holland Park, Kensington, mm-hmm. and it was a lateral apartment. Okay. Um it was bought for around two and a half million. I had investors mm-hmm. We were in for 3.8. Then I took the investors out at 4.5, refinanced it, and then sold it on for about 6.4, 6.5. Wow. So that was about 1.7 million uh, profit at that time. And that was when it was like, yeah, okay. Now now, now, now it's getting serious. Now now I know how to make proper money. And that was then, in 2006, 2007. One thing I'm very curious about was the lifestyle that you would have been living back at that age in your mid to late 20s actually doing very well making lots of money being very successful living in a city like london 
what was what was your lifestyle like? How extravagant was it? It was quite pleasant, sir. Actually, yeah. Yes, it was. Um, it was a very nice lifestyle. I was uh, living had my nice Aston Martin. I had my Ferraris. I had a beautiful range of cars, five six cars mm-hmm. parked in the garage. Um, you know, going down to the top bars, restaurants, nightclubs, and you know, as I said, I mean, girls were never a problem. There was too many girls, mm-hmm. and there were too many parties at the time. And I just had a great time, basically. Yeah, I had a great time. They, we, we were going out to the best places. And we were having, you know, we were traveling as well. I should have traveled more. Okay. When you're making money, you need to travel more. Mm-hmm. Not just stay in London. You know, get up. I would have, thinking back, I would have gone to Manchester. I would have traveled up to Newcastle. Traveled up to all different places around England. Or traveled around Europe. Not just stay in London. Mm-hmm. That's my advice. So when you make money, move around. Okay. But no, I had a bunch of like Jay-Z parties and there was like, you know, they're spending 60, 60, 70,000 pounds in one night, the people on the table I'm with. Wow. You know, it's just crazy. What I've seen in my life has been crazy. You know, I've dated, you know, Michael Caine's daughter. Mm-hmm. I've, had, I've had experiences that other people have not experienced in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been, it's been a real crazy ride. Um, but what it has made me is, is, is humble now. Sure. You know, from being arrogant guy that was running around with all this money mm-hmm. is now made me respect people because I've seen people on the breadline and I've also seen how hard it is when you are suffering so now I'm a completely different character to what I used to be um, yeah but I had a good time put it like that I would never change it for anything else when you surround yourself with very wealthy people yeah um, like one, of, one of my business partners was uh, very wealthy you know he was, he, was, he was two deals we did together he was the right hand man to uh, Imran Khan Okay. Um, and then I had another business partner who's very wealthy as well. You just find yourself with very wealthy people. You mm. don't feel wealthy yourself. Yeah. You always think, oh, do you know what? You've got 3 million, you've got 5 million, you've got 7 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your friends have got 50, 100, 150, 200. You know, you, don't, you always got to try and improve on what mm-hmm. you're doing. You're, it's never good enough. So that's how I felt. I always felt that I wasn't rich and I was in this bubble yep. with people that were more wealthy than me. That's, that's a good place to be where you feel like a small fish in a big pond. Because a lot of people want to be the other way around. A lot of people want to feel like they're the big fish yeah. in a small pond, whether that's for ego or whatnot. But obviously living in London myself, when you're surrounded by people that are just playing at a level way bigger than than yourself, yeah, it, it makes you feel like, it opens your eyes to how much more there is to achieve, how much of a bigger game there is to play and and spurs you on it makes you more hungry as well of course to to be successful mm-hmm. but i've learned so much over time you know how who who to deal with who not to deal with builders what sort of builders you have to be careful of you know there's many things you need to learn in this business well talk us through some of those some of those lessons that you maybe learned the hard way that the hard way then when it came to builders or or, or teams or just working with the right kind of investors and partners um, what are some experiences you kind of had that allowed you to learn those lessons? Doing large projects, mm-hmm. say 40 million GDUE, you need to have the right team. You've mm-hmm. got to have everybody in place. You've got to have the right QSs, CDM, structural engineers. You have to have the right team around you because if you just bowl in thinking you can do this yourself, yep. you can't mm-hmm. because it's so complicated. You've got so much paperwork to go through. Every nut and bolt you need to have a drawing for. So before I was doing flats, I could walk in, I could design them. It was easy. But when it comes to doing six or seven or eight apartments, somewhere like in the heart of Mayfair, yep. you need to have everything documented. So that was my failure on a couple of projects. But how, where how, how, now I would know who to, who to put in there. 
and who to employ. So who would you say are the most important, if you use the word power team, then that you need to kind of operate a business like this, who are the most important people and professionals you'd need around you? It depends on the size of the project. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the larger the project, there's all different types of teams. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are doing large commercial buildings at the moment in London are people like McLaren. Mm -hmm. uh, there's huge, you know, they're huge, but there's loads of different people you can, you can approach. But my philosophy now is, if I'm going to do a large project, yep. to have the right team around me, because mm -hmm. you can't do it by yourself. And that was something I learned. And okay. I, and I lost, I lost money, but I, I ruined my reputation slightly mm -hmm. by going into two or three large projects and not putting the right team around me. So we're talking like architects, QSs, yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. Okay, no, that, that makes sense. Um, so let, let's talk about obviously building that portfolio up over then, you know, the, the, the 2000s from that first deal to the point where you'd amassed a portfolio of around about 120 million. Is around that, that right? Yeah, around that. Um, so yeah, talk us through kind of what happened up until that point and yeah. where things started to change. It was, it was um, you know, it was building up, building up. So the, old, the idea was we would refinance or we would sell probably 30% of the properties. Okay. And then refinance the others at say 80% of value. Mm -hmm. So we would um, put a tenant in there, we would rent it and we would keep rolling this on. Yeah. Up until obviously 08 when they stopped lending. Then, mm -hmm. then this domino effect happened where we couldn't borrow any more money. So we were putting this portfolio up between me and Khaled and we had about 120 million pounds worth. Okay. It was a very um, good portfolio, I would say, because it was all in the prime locations of London. Sure. All done up to tip-top standard, mm -hmm. amazing standard. Um, and we were doing very well. We had, we had a very, very nice life. We had flats everywhere. We, you know, we had constant income, mm -hmm. you know, I can't complain. Life was life was amazing. So I say from 22 to 33, my life was fantastic, and I've learned so much in that time that now going forward, I know how to make money again without making the mistakes I made before. Okay, okay. And so, for those that haven't heard your story, then uh, uh, banks obviously stopped lending, and the portfolio you had. I mean, in terms of where you were at with, with your exposure to the banks, they just stopped playing nice and changed their attitude overnight. Yeah, I mean, you would you'd have people like HBOS saying, right, Paul Roshan, we mm -hmm. will give you 100 million. I was very close. I was with uh, with uh, Savills trying to get the paperwork all sorted out. And we mm -hmm. will give you 100 million JV opportunity. Mm -hmm. but you don't have to put any money in and you can go and buy. You'll be the first one to yeah. go and buy London property. At 100 million, we start you with. Wow. And it was all organized by, uh, you know, a specialist property finance for Savills. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were ready to go and to do this. And that market was just turning at the time as well. But if, if I had signed that document and done that deal, that would have been a fantastic deal. 100 million, no money in JV. Wow. And that was the support I was getting at the time because they believed in me and mm -hmm. they believed in my product at the time as well. Of course. And so what was, so then what happened in terms of, when the banks stopped playing nice and you then had to end up selling on the portfolio, what was kind of the first memory you had where it was a bit of a, okay, this is what's happening in the market? Well, you know, it's like the hampers stopped coming at Christmas. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you stopped getting invited to the Wimbledon tennis. or you stopped By the banks. By the banks. Yep. Or you stopped getting invited over mm -hmm. to, to Monaco. Or boat shows, mm -hmm. all different things, yeah. Um, and they, they 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 don't turn against you, but they 
they just very, I don't know, some of the banks were very nasty, you know. We will bankrupt you. We will do this to you. And you'll be working at McDonald's for the rest of your life. Really? You will never make a penny again, Roshan. Okay? Yeah. Some of them were like that. Some of them, oh, we'll try and work it out with you. We'll try and do, you know, we'll try and work this out. We'll try and make some money. Try and sell these off. You know, we'll try and work it out. But at the end of the day, they all panicked because the market was, was going down. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They all got their jobs to think about. They've got to think about their loan book. I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe my other couple of podcasts, I was having a bit of a moan about it. But thinking about it logically now, yeah. as I'm a little bit older, um, they had to sell off. They had to fill up their loan books. They had to get rid of the assets. Fine. But if we had, if we kept hold of it, we would have had, you know, a large portfolio. We're sitting on 60, 70, 80, 90 million pound profit right now. Well, easily, easily. Mm-hmm. So one thing I was impressed by when I first heard your story was how your character and the way you spoke about obviously what happened and see things didn't the market kind of turned turned against you and the bank stopped playing ball with you and I know you had people around you that were in a similar boat but didn't handle it as well but the way you've bounced back and your character and and your resilience I mean where does that stem from how you know talk me through kind of after after that, after 2008, you know, what was life like? What was your psychology like? And how did you stay resilient through that process? Well, I, I suppose four, five, six people I kind of knew or heard about in, in the business, mm-hmm. they all committed suicide. Mm-hmm. So they maybe jumped in front of a train. Sure. Um, you know, one hanged himself. You know, they couldn't handle it. Yeah. And it's very hard from having a very, very good lifestyle, having whatever you want, to having nothing to losing everything is a very, very difficult thing to take. Of course. And everybody turns their nose up against you and they say, do you know what? He lost his money. He's broke now. We're not interested. We won't give him deals. We don't care, really care about him. It's a very hard thing to deal with. But I have, because I have four children now, Sure. Um, I just want to keep fighting on mm-hmm. for my kids as well, just so they can be proud of their dad. And I want to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got the ability and I know how to make money. If I did it at such a young age, become a multimillionaire by the time I was 27, 28. Sure. We know when most of these guys travel their life, you know, they're mm-hmm. 65, they're still sitting in the office. I can easily make a lot of money now. But it's just nobody really, really thinks, oh, do you know what? Should we back him? Should we give him a chance? Now he's a bit of a cocky, arrogant person. We don't really want to help him. Mm-hmm. But they don't know me deep down inside. The mm-hmm. pain I've gone through, what I've felt, how I've suffered, mm-hmm. how I've lived in a studio flat with no money how I couldn't even feed myself. It was no joke. It was terrible. And I'm just hungry to, to make money, but I am also know that I will be very, very successful again because I will never stop trying. So what's, so what's, what's the plan for the future then? Where are we at right now? Where we are right now yeah. is um, basically, so I brokered a few deals here and there mm-hmm. to keep things moving along. Yeah. Um, you know, 60, 70, 80 million pounds worth of deals over the last four or five years. Um, but I'm just, you know, I'm working with somebody at the moment who I'm developing uh, his apartment for him. Okay. And hopefully that will lead to, to many other opportunities. Um, a very wealthy, very clever individual that uh, hopefully we can do a lot of business together. And we click very well. So looking back at the, let's say the 2000s, which was an era where you had the likes of yourself, some other big names like Candy Brothers, for example, when they were coming up, 
through the game, the Paniotu, whatever. A lot of them have said in interviews that it would be very, very difficult for them to replicate what they did back in those years in today's current market, which maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. I'll, I'll let you share your opinion. But do you think that's the truth? And either way, where do you see the opportunity now moving forward? Good question. I think um, very hard to replicate what was going on then because mm -hmm. you were hitting new ground sure. and you were creating new ideas. Mm -hmm. Everything was new. There was a lot of gadgets back then. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas now it's more of a more mature approach. It's all about the joinery, the finishes. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of new builds going up as well. So there's a lot of competition with all the new builds. High-end new builds are very, very good now. Mm -hmm. High standard. But, you know, when you're buying in Cadogan or you're buying in Mayfair, your traditional, traditional buildings, you can still do excellent finishes. People want lateral flats. Um, I found it very hard to sell basement flats. Basement flats are very difficult. But I wouldn't replicate what I was doing in the past. You have to move on with the times. And moving on with the times is quality, quality standard, you know, sorry, you know, quality finishes to a very, very high standard. Do you think there's the same opportunity for the same kind of uplift in value that you could have back then with sort of a refurb and you could get in for one price, get out for the other price? Or do you think at the minute we're overstretched? It's a, it's a lot harder these yeah. days. It's a lot, lot harder these days to find deals. Um, you know, Di Frank Savills, they, they get the deals, mainly these two guys, Beecham Estates get deals. Sure. Um, but do they give it out to people like me? Mm -hmm. well, I would say Beecham Estates would, but other agents wouldn't. Because they think, that, oh, he's not fully backed, or he doesn't have the money, or we have our own list of people that we'll go to. And even if they do have a good deal, it goes on the open market, and there's 40, 50, 60 people putting bids in. So it's very hard to find deals at the moment, I would say. But I have found a couple of very good deals, which are direct to banks. Okay. Uh, where investors just come in and they just bought it quick, cash. Yeah. You know, fast, 24 hours, 48 hours. And if, if I think the opportunity is getting in with the banks, to be honest, getting in with the banks and getting in with the receivers. That's okay. where you can make the money now. And that, that's where you're making relationships right now. I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm trying to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else was I going to say to you? Something else. There was something else important I was going to say to you about this. A lot of people look on long res. Yeah. They look on long res. They look on right move. And everybody's seen everything. So in the, these days, everything gets put on the internet. So you can't find deals. Mm -hmm. forget, forget long res. Forget the internet. You've got to be like a soldier. You've got to be out there finding it hunting it down, finding the deals, you know, even writing to people, even derelict buildings or doing, you know, um, land research, you know, you spe speak to the lawyers and they do, they do sure. a search. Okay. And I saw on LinkedIn, you posted recently that you've now established a relationship where you have got significant backing and are looking to, to grow again. Are you going to be operating in the same, same areas? Are we talking the same kind of golden triangle, if you like, of, of London? Yes, same same areas, mm -hmm. um, Golden Triangle of London, yeah. and uh, I don't want to do it for more than two years. Okay, I want to go to my bear and develop nice big houses in my bear, and I find it more exciting over there. Really? Yeah. So I, I think there's more opportunity. I think there's less competition. Okay. Yeah. How's how's your motivation changed over the years? Because one thing I've I've definitely learned as you get older, your primary driver your motivation for wanting to achieve something changes and then also as you become more successful your motivation for making your first hundred thousand versus your motivation for making a million versus 10 million they're all 
different motivations and it can be very easy to get fall for complacency and once you start to have nice things you then get sometimes a lot of people begin to lose a bit of hunger because they're more comfortable back then what was your primary driver your your motivation for wanting to win big and how's that changed i think we now you're older when you start making money mm-hmm. it becomes addictive mm-hmm. so you want to make more and you want to keep making more and more and when you're successful you want to just keep thinking well i can get bigger better my business can get stronger mm-hmm. and i can make a lot of money and you just it becomes like i don't know you just become addicted to it you become addicted to making money was there a number you had in mind of like all right once i get there that's enough or was it just grow 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 and see how big i can get well i sat with some uh, gentleman i think he was from citibank at the time and we sat yep. down and he was like why don't you diversify it a little bit mm-hmm. i thought why should i diversify when 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 the property business is doing so well for me um, you know, I had about six, seven million quid in the bank at the time. And I was thinking, well, you know, why diversify? And, you know, looking back, I should have diversified a little bit because you're putting all your eggs in one basket. What, what asset classes would you have diversified into? I don't know, maybe, maybe the stock market, stocks and shares. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could buy banking shares at 40p. Yeah. And then, you know, what, three years later, they're at £4.40. Yeah, wow. I've always found it crazy. One, one thing with banks is they'll give you money to buy real estate, but they won't give you money to buy their own shares. Um, but back then, I think they were lending, would you say irresponsibly? Would I say irresponsibly? The banks were lending? I wouldn't say they were lending irresponsibly. I would say in America, they were lending irresponsibly. Yeah. You know, you'd have a lot of people getting 100% mortgages. Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK, you weren't getting 100% mortgages. Unless you were with people like Allied Irish, I think. Or I don't know. I heard. I don't know for sure. But sure. I never banked with them. Okay. Um, but the people that we were dealing with, we were getting 80% loan to value. Okay. Which was, it was okay. And, and these were like these were like banks like Investec and just... Investec was, was who we started with in the early days. Very much so. Very good bank. Um, and then we moved on. You know, had a, we had a good relationships with other banks like Clydesdale and a few other ones as well. And, and the in terms of the structure of the finance, you'd identify a deal, let's say it was a three, four, five million pound flat. The bank would give you the senior debt at sort of 80% loan to value and then the equity you'd bring in from, from either previous deals or one of your partners and yeah. then on any upside, you'd have a, a profit share. Is that right? I mean, I already knew when I, when I, when I bought a deal how much I would spend sure. and what it would be worth when it's finished. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would know, I'd refinance it, keep the asset, unless I get a really good offer, sell it. Um, and then we just roll it on. We roll the money on to the next deal. And we became larger and larger and larger by keep doing these deals, refinancing, putting money into new deals. Mm-hmm. We never left money in the bank. Okay. I think leaving money in the bank was a waste of time. I wanted the money to work for me. Yeah, that makes Which sense. Which was a mistake at the end, though. Because obviously when a crash happens, you need to leave some capital in the bank to service all your loans. Do you remember what the, I mean, how big were the, the loan payments back then at the peak of your portfolio? I think it's like, if I remember rightly, but, but around 120, 150 grand a week, something, something like that. Wow. Something like that. Okay. And, and was it the rates went up or was it the bank started saying we need to start paying down some of this debt? They did say well, you need to start paying down some of this debt because <laughs> the market's now dropped 20%. You know, yep. You're now 100% geared. And they're panicking. Oh, you know, can we have a 2 million, 3 million, 4 million? Yeah. 
Wow. And it was it wasn't the fact that the the the, the, the stuff I was doing, the the actual developments I was doing were, were bad. I did a very good quality development. It's just the market turned. Okay. Um I saw a, a tweet on Twitter actually this morning and I wanted to get your opinion on it. So it was thro- from Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad Poor Dad. Yes. And the tweet was two thousand and eight was actually a great time to get rich. Everything went on sale. And I borrowed millions of dollars buying real estate bargains. In 2013, I published a sequel to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And the next crash is here. Millions will be wiped out. Please don't be one of them. This is an opportunity for you to take advantage and get richer. So what's your views right now on where the market's going and what's your strategy to take advantage of I this? Think, I think what you just said is, mm-hmm. is, is, is bang on the money. Basically, um, the market's going to come off mm-hmm. uh, by at least 20, 25%. Um, the economy's in a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are suffering. And I think it'll be a good time to be buying over the next six months. I think four, four to six months from now, I think the market will definitely come off. Okay. Um, you get a lot of people, you know, top, top, top agents saying, no, 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 you know, we live in a, we're in a bubble. Yep. Yeah. We were, we were in London. And this London is an effective financial economy yep. capital of the world. Mm-hmm. And you know what? We've got investors from all around the world who want to invest here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the end of the day, it's going to hurt the world. It's not just hurting the UK. And it will prime, will get affected, whether they like it or not. They talk the market up all the time. They don't, that's why a lot of agents don't like me, because I'm always trying to, not trying to buy, bullying the market, but I'm just saying the truth. I've been there, I've experienced it. You've got all the signs for the market to drop again, and it will drop. Very soon. Are you seeing any early no. signs already? Um, have I seen early signs already? Well, I mean, something we bought recently was was dirt cheap from from a bank. So okay. you know, that's a that's a good sign. I can't say too much more about that. So, so what the, the strategy now? Then are you just going to be making you know here to to take advantage of these bargains, making offers? I think I think that for, for me is mm-hmm. is primarily getting back into development right now, yeah. and that's what I'm doing, and I'm I'm going to show how good I am at development again. Yep. Yeah. To somebody who trusts and believes in me. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can then together go and buy a lot of distressed property around central London, maybe Marbella and other areas. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of opportunity going to be coming. Cool. Cool. Okay. And I think a couple final points um, for me is... I know watching this podcast, there's going to be some young 16, 17, 18 year olds out there whose dream is to kind of follow in like your footsteps and, and get into to property and develop beautiful properties. And this is what gets them excited and what they want to do. What practical advice would you give to them in terms of what they need to learn and how they should get started? I think if the, the most important thing you need to do is work, maybe work for a company or work for somebody mm-hmm. to learn the business, you know, throughout developing, not just a construction business, learn the full development, design, everything. Mm-hmm. And I had that working with my uncle um, in the beginning and he taught me. So you need to do that. I think when you start making money, enjoy your life. Sure. Really enjoy your life. But also you have to balance it. Uh, you know, for me, between 18 and 33, I really enjoyed my life. Yep. Um, you know, maybe people like the Candies were, or whoever else were out there, big big developers were just like working very hard. But you know, I had friends in the nightclub business. I was going out. I was mm-hmm. having a good time, and 
you know, enjoy yourself, but to a limit is what I'm trying to say. Where's the yeah. limit? Well, you know, there's a lot of, how can you say, there's a lot of bad women out there, I would say. Mm-hmm. You have to be very careful who you date. Yeah. That is my advice. Because, you know, there's all different types, you know. I've dated a lot of women with mental health. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, they can be lovely people, but it's tiring. It's well. a question I get asked a lot, actually. I, I get asked, is it better while you're building and wanted to stay focused to be single or be in a relationship? What's more conducive to success? And my answer is always, it doesn't matter. You can be single and completely cut off dating and just stay at home, be super locked in, stay focused. Or you can be single where you're going out on dates every night, getting distracted, drinking alcohol, waking up late. And the same goes with being in a relationship. And being in a relationship, you've got to make sure you're selecting the right person because you can be in a relationship with someone that respects your boundaries, understands your values, your mission, and the sacrifice that you're going to need to make to to achieve your goals. And they're willing to give you that space and allow you to do that. At the same time, there's also going to be some women that are probably not going to be as conducive to that and want too much attention or they're just not happy and they get jealous. I I don't want to dive into the details, but I I totally agree. I think it's almost like in, in poker, when you're playing poker, it's not so much how good you are at playing poker, it's your game selection. Are you playing the right games with the right people? And um, I would, yeah, totally agree with that one. I mean, what advice would you give when it comes to, <laughs> you know, in someone in their early 20s or in their 20s wanting to be successful that's thinking, ah, oh, do I need to find a partner? Do I not? Um, it's difficult because you start making money, so you buy the nice car. <laughs> then you, st- you start going out you start socializing then you have more friends mm. and your friends become like an army of friends because sure. you're going out to the clubs you're spending money and everybody wants to know you and girls i mean you know there's there's the, you know no money no honey right no money no honey yeah <laughs> and when, when, when the honey's coming in there's girls everywhere yeah so this is what this is what it was like for me between 18 and 32 33 and then from 33 to 48 which i am now 15 mm. years i've only been in three relationships sure but i've been in relationships all the way through so i haven't been single but I think it's best to have a a relationship with somebody sure. and somebody who ties you down so you can focus on your work. Otherwise, if you're single and you're making money, especially here in London, you know, it takes you off track is what I would say. It can be a very dangerous place full of a lot of distraction. And that's one thing I've learned being in a city is that you have to be, I say focused, but willing to say no to a lot of things. Yeah. Um, otherwise, if, if you wanted to, you could... You could literally go out every single night of the week with a different group of friends and it's it's not conducive to, to focus. Unless, of course, you're socializing intentionally to, to make contacts for business. And don't get me wrong, I've met a lot of guys in London just on spontaneous nights out that ended up being a great business contact that introduced me to someone that found me this deal or um, became an investor in one of the projects. But um, it's got its pros and its cons. Mm. I mean, how... What, what was a typical week in the life of Paul Roshan back then? How extravagant was it? What was, what was, um, what did that look like? I've got to be careful what I say here, right? Uh, of course. Um, <laughs> give us some details. It was a little bit like Wolf of Wall Street, put it yeah. like that. Um, but, um, you know, you just go out, you'd be like, mm-hmm. you know, say you went down to a strip club at the age of 24, 25, and you're Aston Martin Vanquish, you suddenly have six, seven girls trying to get in the back of your car, sure. even though it's got two small seats in the back. 
This was how life was then. Okay. We had the best flats, we had the best cars, we had a great life. And, you know, I would never have traded it for anything, being so rich, so young, mm-hmm. and having such a good time. Um, yeah, God's made me suffer now, and I've had no money, and I've really suffered. Mm-hmm. But now I've got my act together, and, you know, basically going forward, I think it's going to be a good recipe for success after all the things that I've learned. And my advice is to people who are younger than me, mm-hmm. just focus on your work. Yep. Go out and enjoy yourself sometimes. Don't play the field with loads of different women because, mm-hmm. you know, you think Mary Poppins is walking in, but it's not Mary Poppins. It turns out to be something else. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, settle down with a nice girl. You know, that's it. You don't need to be the big man. You don't need to have the best cars all the time. You don't need to be the big player in the club, throwing the crystal, having the bodyguards. You know, it's just, it gets boring after a while. Settle down with a nice girl. Focus on your work because making money is actually very enjoyable. Of course. I think it all comes down to focus. Just surround yourself with people that allow you to be focused. Don't want to distract you. And I'm very fortunate myself that the group of friends I've got around here is if they invite me out and say, oh, I can't tonight, I've got some work to do, they'll be very respectful of that boundary. And they'll yeah. be like, cool, all right, crack on with it. Whereas I've had friends in the past that'll be like, no, come out, come on, don't be boring, come out. But, you know, they're they're not the people you want to be surrounding yourself with. But don't get me wrong, you know, on a on a Saturday night maybe and the boys say, let's, um, let's go out for a nice dinner, then yeah, for sure, I'm absolutely down. Yeah, but you know what, for your age, um, from what I've seen and what you're doing, mm-hmm. your head is very screwed on. Uh, you've got a great following, and I think you're going to do very, very well in your in your property developments. Definitely. I appreciate that. You know, very rare to see somebody with his head screwed on at such a young age. Very mature. No, I really appreciate that. Um, the, la- the last question I have re- referring back to, for those listening out there, that we can give some practical advice to, I think one of the biggest skills somebody can learn in real estate development is the ability to raise raise money, because... For some reason, there's an inflection point that happens in, in some people's property journey and, and myself included where you, you've saved up a bit of money, you've got some access to money and the hard part is finding, um, no, the, the easy part is finding the deals as such and it's like, how am I going to fund fund this deal? So a lot of people are like, oh, I wanted to get into property but haven't got enough money or don't have enough money to scale. But uh, depending on certain areas, whether it's up north or whatnot, you can you can find deals. But as you begin to progress, you actually begin to find that um, finding money is the easy part. As you get into more competitive environments, whether it's London or in higher price brackets where you're looking to do multi-million pound developments, is finding the deals can be very hard. And so I always say a lot of people, when they're learning property, they spend so much time learning about everything apart from how to raise money, capital structures, how to structure it with investors. So, and from that, the, the most frequent question I get is how and where do I find investors and how do I get them to agree to work with me so you've had great success partnering with people in the past like you said at the start of this conversation you're you're great at kind of connecting with people and and adapting um to to get on with with certain people in certain cultures what would you say is is the best way to go about and and get people to want to come on board with you I think you've got to have a, a very good financial business plan. Yep. You have to be somebody, obviously, you have to have charisma. You have mm-hmm. to be different to other people. Sure. Because a lot of investors, they just get bought straight away. Um, be able to show how that they can turn their one pound into two pounds very quickly. Mm-hmm. And 
socializing, I think, is very important. You're not going to get investors just by advertising on LinkedIn or, you know, you've got to go out, you've got to put yourself out. You, you might get the meeting from LinkedIn, but whether they could agree to invest with you is going to be completely different. You can get the meeting from LinkedIn, correct. Yeah. Yeah, well, whether they'll invest with you. Mm-hmm. But there is, there is ways of doing it. And the ways I did it, I was always out socializing, meeting people, putting myself out. And that's how I got investors. Now, I think LinkedIn is very good. Mm-hmm. And I think you can meet a lot of people from that and have a lot of contacts. But, you know, you're asking me how I would get investors. I would put myself out at a young age. Like, you know, you guys are what, 24, 25, 26 in that region? Mm-hmm. Definitely, I would socialize a lot. Yeah, which, which, to be honest, actually, I think a lot of... One thing I've noticed is is social media is great for getting people's attention, yeah. but doesn't necessarily convert them into investors. Um, obviously, you've got great presence on LinkedIn. A lot of people know who you are, but you need to get people one-on-one, face-to-face, and that's when you can really, really sell yourself. And, and these guys, one thing I've noticed is the wealthier these investors, the more savvy they are, the more bullish they are, the more direct they are. And yeah. so that's when having confidence in yourself is so important confidence in your business plan and yeah being able to to show that you're not going to get pushed over because a lot of these time the investors will, will try and they'll be very direct with you and almost bully you a little bit not because that's their personality because they want to see how you react under pressure because they know if, if you can't handle being bullied or pushed by them a little bit when it comes to negotiating a deal or negotiating with the banks or negotiating with contractors yeah. then um, they want to be able to see that you've actually, you know, got that that fire inside of you to to push back. You have to you have to also hit the timelines you say, hit of the course. budgets you say you're going to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything has to go as a business plan goes, and they are happy with with it with the ROIs as well. Mm-hmm. What what was your relationship with some of the other big the big names in development back then? Did you work closely with with any of the guys, or were you very much? When you see when you see work closely with what what other developers or yeah I mean so it seems like there was there or was agents a, no the developers like back then I, m- I mentioned the Candy Brothers earlier in this podcast and and guys like that that were um, it, it seems like there was a, a, a sort of a clique or a group of people back then like yourself that were really just pioneering that super prime luxury space because that was the first time there was international money coming to London. They were clever because they, 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 I think they got on a plane and they went to, I, I can't remember which country it was, but they got backed. They yeah. were introduced. Qatar, by, I think by, it was. Yeah, they yeah. got introduced to somebody with mm-hmm. a lot of money. Um, and and they, were, they were very good at what mm-hmm. they did and they advertised themselves well. Uh, good PR. Yeah, very good. But uh, you've got other developers. You have people like, I don't know, Spinks. Mm-hmm. Spinks used to do big houses, huge sure. houses, uh, selling at 120 million. I think he still is. Yeah, or in Ox- Oxfordshire, selling another one for I can't remember 140 million. Park Place in Ox- Henley yeah. on Thames. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was the guy mm-hmm. who I thought did very, very good finishes. Yeah, um, and he was very high end. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? It was this. There was a few at the time. There wasn't that many when we were starting out, but now there's a lot. Sure. Now there's probably about six or seven. Cool. So those that want to connect with you, then where's where's best for them to connect with you? What's what's the best place to reach out to to Paul Roshan if they want to? Work with you, invest with you, send you deals. Uh, just, just do it through LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more low profile probably on LinkedIn over the next few months. But uh, oh, really? Yeah, I just want to concentrate on my work at the moment. Okay. Cool. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn will be the best option. Well, well, we'll link all of your information in the description or the show notes of this podcast. I mean, 
final question is what advice would you give to to me um first of all i would shave your head because i think you look a lot better oh there's no way i'm shaving <laughs> my head um, well, you can pull it off maybe not me <laughs> you know what i think you're doing crowdfunding right at the moment is what you do as well you, you do crowdfunding um yeah we we have sort of multiple investors come in on one project which we want to we're going to change that moving forward with with the development especially as we get into the bigger deals i think it's more important as the risk profile of the developments increases that you actually just have maybe ideally one partner on the project so basically you want to have one partner rather than do the crowdfunding option now yeah in in, in going forward in the future. Right, right now crowdfunding is is a great solution for us because we can just fill it up pretty easily but as we're now developing bit more of a clearer business plan for the next three four five years yeah. we want to have someone that can can work with us that we like and has access to much larger resources that can that understands a business plan that understands this business and the numbers and um is just willing to invest in us and trust that when we bring them a deal they know we can deliver on that but we're, we're in a process where we're just building up our reputation and our track record and playing a long-term game where that's that's good. Mm-hmm. But where where are you going to be looking to develop, and what areas are you concentrating on yourself out of interest? Um, so, I see a huge amount of potential over the long term in the build to rent space. I think as our my generation and and younger generations now are gonna rent for a lot longer before they transition into owning a home, especially in the bigger cities, Manchester, um, London for one, of course. And so we're, we're looking at build to rent and I've spent a lot of time looking at data and figuring out where we want to do that. So that's one thing. And then we still want to continue on the luxury side of things. Obviously, the deals we've got in the pipeline now are more luxury residential. And those we want to develop in areas that are pushing kind of 350 to 400 pound per square foot on the on the sale values. Because yeah. I think that's that's where the market of buyers are going to be that will buy the types of homes we want to deliver. Is this in Cambridge or? So so in Cambridge here right now, we're looking at over just over 300 pound per square foot. Yeah. Um, but again, this is this is a deal to build up our, our brand, our reputation, our track record. But moving forward, we want to be sort of more Oxfordshire, home counties, that kind of, that kind of, and, and, and come into London a little bit. But the luxury stuff, I don't think that's going to be the huge money maker over the next however many years. That's more of like, to build a brand to, to to get build up a nice cash pot, and then the build to rent stuff is more just investments that we can we can hold for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah. That sounds, sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I'm sure you're going to do very well, and Fingers I'm sure crossed. you will you will eventually get your your the right investor for yourself. It takes time. It yeah. It takes time. You know, mm-hmm. to find the right person, you have got to click with them as well. Well, yeah, we're we're in talks with with certain people, but. This is getting into a relationship with an investor, as you know, is is like it's it's almost like getting into a romantic relationship or a marriage. You know, you've you, got to start dating first, right? You've got to start dating first. Yeah. You've got to you've got to spend a lot of time with each other and really understand each other's values and, and how we operate under pressure. And mm-hmm. it's like, do we want to get into business with this person for the foreseeable? Although it can just be on a deal by deal basis, and we get out of a deal and think, you know what, great to do business with you and and find someone else, but. You know what the key is as well when you have an investor is that you report back regularly. Yeah. Every little thing mm-hmm. that happens in a project, you report back and you give full details of what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what I've learned with investors. Totally. Never keep them in the dark on anything. 
even no update is an update. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one thing I've learned. Yeah. Even if there's nothing to update, say, hey, just to let you know, not much has changed this week. Yeah. Um, but but my advice is enjoy your life mm-hmm. from 18 to 32, 33 as much as you can, but work very hard at the same time. And then later life, have children. Mm-hmm. And then all you do from then on is you focus on your work. And that's where I'm at right now, focusing purely on my work. Cool. Well, Paul, I just want to say massive thank you for spending the time with us. It's Welcome. been great speaking with you and I look forward to, to seeing your success over, over the years to come and, and spending more time with each other, catching up in the future. Maybe next time we do this, we'll be in Marbella, yeah, nice. um, which will be fun. So yeah, thanks a lot. And All right. we'll thanks for soon. having me as well. Appreciate it, Tyler. No problem. Thank cool. you.